Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11? We'll be looking at verses 20 to 28 this morning. I'd like to read this passage of Scripture for us as we begin. Hebrews chapter 11, begin at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover, and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage in Scripture, and we look at another one of those heroes of the faith, Father, I pray that you would encourage our heart. Show us what it is you want us to learn from Moses' example and from the patriarchs who went before him. Encourage us challenge us, and help us to grow in our faith. Amen. Well, today, as you heard, we are going to look at the faith of Moses and the patriarchs who came before him. And we have talked about Moses before in the book of Hebrews. It was in chapter 3 that the author of Scripture here uh, made his case as to why Jesus is greater than Moses. And do you remember why he did that? Why he had to speak in such a way? Well, it was because to the Jews, Moses was the greatest of all men. Abraham might be the supreme example of faith, but Moses was Israel's greatest prophet. Uh, He was their uh, lawgiver. He was their historian, the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He was their deliverer, the one who led them out of Egypt into the promised land. So it shouldn't surprise us that in chapter 11, in God's hall of faith and in a book that is written to the Hebrews specifically, that the writer would spend a good deal of time looking at Moses. I mean, listen to what the scripture says of Moses. For example, in Numbers 12, verses 6 to 8, God said this about his servant. He said, when a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions, and I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. That's an amazing statement. I mean, here God, in making himself known to others, has done so in visions and dreams, and he speaks through his word. But with Moses, when Moses would go up on the mountaintop, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks with his friends. 
It'd be like you and I sitting down and having a conversation. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And when Moses would come down from the mountain, remember how his face glowed from being in the presence of the Lord for an extended period of time, so much so that he used to wear a veil to keep his face hidden because when he was away from the Lord and back with the people, that glory would fade and he didn't want the people to see those changes. At the end of Moses' life, this tribute was written We find it at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 34. It was probably written by Joshua. But it said that since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. No one was as great as Moses until Christ. Elijah, Elisha, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others were all great men of God. But there was no one like Moses until the coming of Christ. Moses was unique, but he was not alone in his faith, and that's what the scripture is showing us here in chapter 11, is that Moses stood in a line of individuals, of men and women of faith who had gone before and after him, and they each have something to teach us about what it means to walk with God. I think as we go through this message this morning, you're going to hear some similarities to last week. And that's not too surprising when we find ourselves in the same context and looking at the example of these heroes of the faith. Number one, we see in Moses' life that faith looks beyond the grave. Faith looks beyond the grave. In the book of Hebrews, we see that faith is forward-looking. It looks forward to what is to come. It looks forward to Christ. For these Old Testament saints, they were all looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. For us as New Testament believers, we're looking for the second coming of the Lord. And we're looking for that day when he will call us home into his very presence. We look forward to heaven and to our eternal reward. And it goes back to verse 1 of this chapter that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That we have confidence in the promises of God. We know that there is life beyond this grave, that that eternal life starts now when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. It is a whole new quality of life that God brings to us, and we experience and taste that in this life. But we will not know it until in all of its fullness until we are with Christ in heaven. But because of what is to come, we live differently in this world. We have a different set of values, a different perspective on life and death. And we see that in the example of these three patriarchs and Moses. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph all came to the end of their life full of hope. And they looked forward to the future and they blessed their sons. We see in verse 20 that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, and that is recorded in Genesis 27. But no mention is made here of how Jacob, with his mother's help, 
stole his brother's blessing. You know, that's kind of passed over here because of what happened in the scripture. When you go back to that account, you'll see how Rebecca had said to Jacob, you know, she, she knew that her dad, I mean, excuse me, she knew that her husband liked meals with wild game and, and favored Esau, and so she, along with Jacob, schemed to get that blessing. You know, Jacob was to put hairy uh, garments on and go into his dad bringing a dish that she had prepared in the way that he liked. And when Isaac found out that he had been deceived, he was angry. But he could not change the blessing. And in time, Isaac came to understand what God was doing. And Jacob would give the blessing of Abraham, excuse me, Isaac would give the blessing of Abraham to his son Jacob. And Jacob himself would be changed in an encounter with God as he went away to serve Laban and he would come back and he would meet God and he would be changed. And in the future, God would be known as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these three men of faith. Jacob, at the end of his life, would bless each of his sons and Joseph's sons. And it tells us here that he worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Joseph knew that his dad was about to die, brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to his father to give his blessing to them. And Jacob would take these sons as his own. They would be part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Joseph comes and he brings his two sons, Manasseh the older, so he places him at his father's right hand so he can receive the greater blessing, the right of the firstborn, if you will, and he places Ephraim at his left hand. But Jacob, guided by the Holy Spirit, crosses his hands, and he gives the greater blessing to Ephraim and not to Manasseh. And in time, Ephraim would become the greater tribe. Joseph, when he was near the end of his life, spoke of the exodus that was to come. And he gave instructions about his bones, it says. He did not want his body to remain in Egypt. He wanted his bones to be carried and buried in the promised land. What's interesting about that was that that was centuries off. I mean, it would be four centuries later when Moses would remember Joseph's instructions and his bones would be carried with them and buried in Shechem in the promised land. These three men, these three patriarchs, had faith in God's promises. They believed that what God had said he would do and they looked to the future beyond the grave. And what's interesting to me about their example is this, that their conviction was that even death cannot frustrate God's purposes. Even death cannot stand in the way of what God ultimately is going to do in our life and in our world. They could speak with confidence about what would happen after they died. And God wants us to have that kind of faith, rock 
solid, standing upon the promises of his word, a faith that changes the way that we look at life and at death. I want to share an example this morning of a man who lived that way. His name was Adoniram Judson. There's a picture of him here. He was the first American missionary. He went out in the early 1800s from the United States, and he would go to Burma, modern Myanmar. And there he would labor for the rest of his life. He brought the gospel to a people who had no knowledge of Jesus at all. He had to learn a new language. He had to learn a new culture. He and his wife would go there. Two of their children who were born in that marriage died and were buried in Burma. His wife would also become very ill, and she would die and be buried there. He would marry again. His second wife would also die. He would have one son who survived from his time there. He was also arrested, imprisoned, and tortured for two years at a time when Burma and England were in conflict, and they accused Judson of being a spy for Britain. It was a horrible time in his life. He had to go on a forced march, for example, where barefoot he was forced along with other men to walk on sharp stones on gravel roads. He was tortured and beaten along the way and he so despaired of life that there was a time when they came to a bridge that he thought about just jumping off this bridge and ending his life right there. But he persevered by faith. It would be six years before he saw one convert to Christ. Six years of labor before he saw one heart changed by the gospel. But when he died in 1850, he had translated the whole Bible into Burmese, a translation that is still used today, and there were 7,000 baptized believers. There were 63 churches and 163 missionaries who had followed his example and gone to serve Christ in other places in the world. What's interesting about Judson's life is that it almost didn't happen. Judson was born in Malden, Massachusetts in 1788. He was the son of a devout but strict congregational minister. In fact, his family life was so strict that when Judson went away to college, he kind of rebelled against that. And he met, as an undergraduate, an older student who really took him away from the gospel. This young man was a deist. He was critical of the gospel. He was part of the New Age thinking of that time. I mean, New Age thinking is not new. Uh, he studied at Brown University. His dad had picked Brown University because he thought it would be better for his faith than going to Harvard or Yale at that time. Not so. He would graduate as the valedictorian in 1807. He was bright. He was gifted. But he, was, he had lost his faith in those years in college. And Judson determined to enter a stage career. 
He had gotten involved with the theater at school, enjoyed that, and so he was thinking he would make a life uh, in the theater, and he began to travel with a traveling kind of troupe. But really, it didn't turn out so well with this theater company. He ended up being more of a vagabond struggling to make ends meet. He was also looking for his college friend who had so influenced him, Jacob Eames. And one night, outside of New York City, he found himself spending the night in a country inn. And as he was about to drop off to sleep, he heard a scream from the room next door. And all night long, came the constant screams of cursing and crying. And finally, at daybreak, the sounds and the screaming ended. That morning, Judson asked the innkeeper about the screaming that had kept him awake most of the night, and the innkeeper explained that what he heard was the gasping and groans of a dying man. And Judson said, do you know who that man was? Do you know his name? And the innkeeper replied that his name was Jacob Eames, his atheistic college friend. Well, that situation of realizing that he was so close to his friend who had died in such terror left a deep impression upon Judson. And it was because of that experience and because of the faith that he had been taught by his family that Judson came back to the Lord and fully surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And years later, he would say, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would all pass from this life kicking and screaming as my tortured friend. And to a cousin, he would write, near the end of his life, he said, I am not tired of my work, nor am I tired of the world. But when Christ calls me home, I will go with the gladness of a boy bounding home from school. Faith changes the way that we look at death and life. And I think of a guy like Judson, who if he had not answered that call and responded to God's mercy and grace, thousands upon thousands in Burma might never have heard the gospel. Faith is courageous. We see that in the example here of Moses and his parents. We talked last week about how faith takes risks, and we see that again here in this passage. The faith of Moses begins with the faith of his parents, Amram and Yochebed. And Pharaoh had given this order that every male baby born to the Israelites was to be killed by the midwives. Remember how the midwives disobeyed that order? They would not do that. They said that the Hebrew wives were vigorous, and so they didn't get there in time, and so that was the reason they weren't doing it, but they had chosen to disobey Pharaoh. And when the midwives wouldn't obey him, then Pharaoh gave the order that every male child that was born to the Hebrews was to be drowned in the Nile or thrown into the Nile and eaten by the crocodiles. And Moses' parents disobeyed. They hid him for three months, and when they could no longer hide him, they placed him in a basket in the Nile where he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh. And Miriam, his older sister, was watching, and thanks to her quick response, when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses, she ran to them, and she offered Moses' mother 
as a nursemaid to care for Moses. I mean, it's a remarkable thing that God did there, that now Moses' very own mother would be the one who would nurture him and care for him in those early years while he was in the house of Pharaoh. It took courage to defy Pharaoh's order, but they believed that Moses was no ordinary child. Now, when you read that phrase, you kind of wonder, well, what does that mean? I mean, in in one sense, don't we all believe that our children are no ordinary child, you know, that they have great potential and they're beautiful and we love them? But Josephus tells us that Amram had had a vision in which God told them that they would have a son who would deliver his people. Now, we don't know that with certainty. That's not recorded in Scripture here. But it does fit with what God has often done when he has come to people, like at the birth of John the Baptist or to Mary, and he gives this clear word of what he is about to do. And it may very well be that Amran had had that vision that this was no ordinary child. And so they trusted God, and they did everything that they could to protect his life. Verse 24 tells us that when Moses had grown up, when he was 40 years old, Stephen tells us, he made a decision to say no to his privileged position in Egypt and to identify with the people of God instead. And no doubt there were people who would have thought he was crazy. I mean, he had it made. He had power and wealth. He had security. He had comfort. He had education. He had everything that you would want. Why would you walk away from all of that to identify with a people who are slaves? Philip Hughes, in his commentary, made an interesting observation. He said, you know, if you think about it, I mean, here was Joseph who stayed in his position in Egypt. I mean, he was exalted by Pharaoh to this position where he was second in command over all of Egypt, and he stayed in that position. And Moses, who was growing up in Pharaoh's household, would have had a prominent position at some point if he had just kept quiet, chose not to. What's the difference? The difference is the circumstances in which they were in. Both were following the will of God. Joseph's position brought favor and protection to a small, a small tribe. Remember when they went down into Egypt, they were just 70 people, 70 in all. But Moses' decision to leave brought deliverance from slavery and oppression and gave birth to a new nation. It really shows, though, how different circumstances can result in different decisions and why we need to listen to the Lord and his leading. I mean, Daniel, Esther, they used their positions of prominence to preserve their people or protect them. And there are other times when God called people to leave all of that behind. Moses had a true sense of values. In verse 25, it says that he saw the pleasures of this life as fleeting and the rewards of heaven as eternal. So where was he going to place his life? It's not upon what this world has to offer, but it is upon eternity. And I'm going to live in a way that counts for
for eternity. Faith is risky. Sometimes it means putting your life on the line. Sometimes it means death. Sometimes it means saying no to comfort and security to follow Christ. Often it means we don't know what God's going to do next. I mean, it's just we're taking one step at a time because we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring or where he may lead us or what he may do in our life, but we trust him. That's what it means to walk by faith, that his will is good, that he knows what he is doing. And we want to live in a way that counts for eternity. In 2 Corinthians, the scripture says this, that therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, and that that becomes a discipline in our life to do that. We can only do that by faith, that we see what is lasting, what is solid, what is more real than what we see in this world. And that's what these men and women in Hebrews 11 did. And finally, we see in this chapter or in this section we're looking at that faith openly identifies with Christ. And we see that in verses 26 to 28. This is the most profound thing I see in Moses' life, that there comes a point when he had to choose. Am I going to follow God or am I going to follow the world? And to put that into our New Testament context, am I going to follow Christ or am I going to follow the world? And what it says about him is that he chose Christ. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. You know, that choice comes to each of us. What are we going to do with our life? Are we going to follow God and his will for our life, or are we going to run with the world and follow what it has to offer? Will we live our life for self, for selfish reasons, and for the things that we may want? Are we going to sit on the fence and try have it both ways? Are we going to hide in the shadows and not get involved when God calls us to get involved? Are we going to say to God, it's not my concern, it's not my issue, you know, I don't need to do this? Or will we choose to surrender everything to him? Will we follow Christ? And what it says here is that by faith, Moses left Egypt. He said no to the past. He burned his bridges behind him. There was no way to go back after what had happened in his life. The story of when he had tried to settle a dispute that was going on and he had murdered an Egyptian and Pharaoh found out about it and Moses knew there was no turning back at this point. And he would flee into the desert in Midian where he would meet the living God. 
By faith, Moses kept the Passover. It was another example of faith. And he instituted the Passover as a lasting ordinance in Israel that year after year after year they were to remember the Passover and what God had done. And he instituted that celebration before the event had even occurred. I mean, while this is taking place, he is telling the Israelites, this is what you are to do and this is how you are to do it and it's written down and it's recorded. And when you think about it, I mean, the Israelites had never done this before. The Passover is totally new and these are rather strange instructions. I want you to stay inside your house. I want you to put blood on your doorpost. I want you to... Uh, be dressed and ready to leave. I want you to eat your meal in haste. I want you to eat unleavened bread because there's not time for that bread to rise and everything. And so he's given all these very specific instructions. And it is costly. Every family has to slay a lamb for their family or household. And not just any lamb, but the best lamb you have. The one who is without spot or blemish. And it required faith to do that. I mean, I mean, think about that. If God said that to all of us today, you know, he brought something that was totally new and he wanted us to do that by faith, trust him, and it sounds rather bizarre and it's kind of strange, you know, would you obey? Or would you say, you know, I think I'll wait and see how this pans out. Maybe you guys can do that, and I'll just kind of sit over here and watch. No. God had gotten their attention through the plagues that had occurred, and when the word came, they obeyed. And they kept the Passover, and they would do that year after year after year. They chose to identify with Christ, if you will, they chose to place themselves under the blood of the Lamb. There comes a time when each of us must decide, will we follow Christ or the world? Not in the shadows, but openly and courageously. You know, one of the things that I have seen in my years in ministry here, and it's not just here, but it's all over, is the concern that parents have for their children that they walk with God. And I think about our kids that have grown up in our church and some who have walked away from the faith. And I think of how we have tried to do everything that we could to pass that on. And the fact that some have walked away from the faith is not unusual. I mean, that has happened just like with Judson in those years in college. But our great prayer is that they come back to the Lord. And there's no guarantee that someone will. You know, all we can do on our part is pray and encourage. But my appeal here is to those young adults. My appeal is to those who are wrestling or being tempted by the world around them to choose Christ. To think of these examples of faith and to put your confidence in the living God, just like Moses, just like Isaac, like Jacob, like Joseph, just like Abraham, and to trust him and walk with him because his word is true. And the consequences of those decisions, 
are just so vastly different. It's life or death. It's heaven or hell. It is blessing or curse. I mean, it's all there laid out in the scripture. It is why this is so urgent and so imperative. But I also understand that it takes faith to trust God. A few years ago, at Trinity International University, our seminary and college, there was a scholarship established in memory of George Beverly Shea. You know, and our older members here at the church will remember Bev Shea, but there may be others who don't. And I think that's one of the reasons why we need to tell some of these stories of these men and women of faith who have gone before us, missionaries and those who gave their life to the Lord. And Bev Shea will be remembered for his long ministry with Billy Graham. For over 60 years, he sang at almost every crusade that Billy Graham ever held. And he had a beautiful baritone voice. Well, George Beverly Shea was 23 years old when he made a decision that changed the direction of his life. He had grown up in a devout Christian home He was encouraged at a young age to use his fine singing voice in services in the Wesleyan Methodist Church. His father was a minister there. But the financial needs of the family made it necessary for him to leave college, and he began to work in an insurance office. However, he continued to sing in churches and for Christian radio programs. But then one day, unexpectedly, he was offered an audition at a secular singing position in New York City. And when he went there, he passed the test and he was offered an opportunity where he would be paid a substantial salary and wide recognition. Bev Shea could have sung in opera. He could have sung professionally. He could have been one of the most famous uh, singers and artists of his generation. And he wrestled with that decision. Well, it's interesting that one Sunday, as Bev was praying about this decision and what he should do, he went to the family piano. (laughs) And there at the piano, his mom had left a poem for him. And that poem was one that she had placed there strategically because she knew the decision that he was wrestling with And she didn't want to say too much, but she was kind of praying as a mother does. Excuse me. And then wanting to influence his decision. And the poem was this one. It was written by Rhea Miller, and it says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame I'd rather be true to his holy name. And Bev Shea sat down that day and he wrote the music to that song. 
a song that he would actually later sing that day at a service that his father was leading. But that song became the theme of his life. I'm sorry, I find these stories very touching to me as I think about the commitment that they made. I also look at that picture of Bev Shea and I think of how much he reminds me of my dad. Uh, my dad had a real similarity um, in looking at that picture to him. But I think of these individuals. There's a theme in the message that I am sharing today that there comes a point when each of us have to decide, and often it's in those years when we are a teenager or a young adult, when those decisions are made that will set the whole direction of our life. And either our life will be used for the glory of God or it will be lived for self. And that's why it's so important that we seek Christ and we give our life to him. What about you? Will you follow Christ and will you use your talents for his glory alone? Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who are listening today, and you know our heart as no one else does. You know what we are wrestling with in our life. You know the choices that we have made that have brought us to this point. And Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would bring such conviction to our heart that we would turn from sin and turn from the fleeting pleasures of this life and place our confidence fully in Christ and that we would give him everything, our life, our skills, our gifts, our talents, our treasure, whatever it is, and live for him with no regrets. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.